Atlanta, we're, uh, you know, we did it. We, what's funny is like, we'll do short blurbs about 15 to 11 to get to the meat. And I feel like we did a whole meat episode right there. And, <laughs> yeah, it was I like mean, 50 straight minutes of blurbs. Either. Yeah, I know. Uh, but like, hey, let's jump into the top 10. So controversial pick, but I kind of watched this movie again. You're going to get mad at me. Be like, you devoted another two hours and 20 minutes to this for a third time rather than watch something else. Uh, but it did, and I liked it. Uh, but I watched the director's cut. That's the difference. Midsummer is my number 10 pick. Um, a movie that if you would ask me after my first viewing where it ranked, having not seen 50 movies, I would be like, somewhere in the 40s. <laughs> like It was fine. Mm-hmm. I liked parts of it, but it's, it didn't like affect me. You know, It's number 31 for me. Not that this is a hard and fast list, but I mean, it's still up there. Like I, It's on the list. I would encourage you if you haven't seen the director's cut. Maybe you have. Did you watch the director's mm-hmm. cut? Yeah. No. Yeah. Oh, you yeah. Did. I'm shaking okay, my sorry, head. Yes. Sorry. Yeah, I didn't sorry. know if you saw it after we watched it. You said, mm-hmm, and I just didn't hear. Okay. So you saw the director's cut. Okay. Because I felt like it really added something to it uh, in the back end. Because uh, the second time I watched it, what I told you I was most fascinated by was like, wow, that beginning is really fucking great. Uh, mm-hmm. Like it, it, it freaks you out because like the way everything's filmed, it feels like there's almost this artifice to it. Like it's almost a, I mean, obviously it probably is a sound stage, but it feels like a stage stage. Like we're watching right. this performance, you know what I mean? And like, yeah, there's this light outside, but you're like, that's fake. There's nothing outside that window. Like this woman's so isolated and shit like that. I was like, wow, that's amazing. The director's cut buoys, I think the back half a lot more just by letting things play out a little bit more naturally. It's weird to think adding time would make it feel shorter, but it ends up doing that. Mm. Um, Also, just in terms of horror, and it's probably been done before, but I haven't seen it. The idea of making a horror film draped in light you know, the, the the early tenets of horror is what you can't see will frighten you. That's why we drape our monsters in shadows. We don't really do that in this, you know? Right. Uh, and I thought it was a really amazing deconstruction of a breakup and how you share grief at the same time. So hey, it's mm-hmm. really high up on my list, man. I don't know. I mean, uh, do you have anything you want to say about it? I know it's not as high on your list. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I liked it much more um, the second time that I saw it. Um, the first time you're sort of wondering where it's going and it just sort of feels like this aimless, uh, bad drug trip that keeps getting worse in a good way. And by the end, it really sold me. It gave me chills when the score music kicks, kicks up and that fire happens not to spoil anything. Um, but it is sort of a, uh, an ode to religious terror, um, which was a popular genre in the seventies specifically the wicker man um not the nicholas cage shit remake i'm talking about the original wicker man which is about you know a, a normal british man kind of no no what? i read in an interview ari oster said specifically nicholas cage's wicker man is why oh, he went did to he? Film school yeah oh dude. my god how embarrassing i really you know, i really dropped the ball back fan and he says come at me i don't care like i mean her red this is your number 10 on the on the list, yeah, huh? Whatever. So I, this guy. I, was, well, whatever. I, I don't. I don't respect. I mean, I don't, whatever. Uh, he's a genius, anyway. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I. I really. I really like the movies. What I'm saying, oh, a really wonderful color palette and uh, uh-huh. genuinely unsettling things that I hadn't seen. It's not like the violence, you know what I mean? But it's like people getting burned 
to death and some of them not reacting to being burned to death some of them screaming in agony right uh mm-hmm. like it, it's it's you have no idea what people burn all the time it's you know religious don't look at me you're like going side-eyed like i'm revealing stuff well, yeah i was like in the middle of my thoughts in the movie and you're like anyway I, this is why i like um oh, but no so i mean it, oh, it, 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 it's it's got it's got great cinematography um it's got uh, some really wonderful performances. Um, like you said, it is kind of an allegory for a breakup. But what we've said before, and I really stand by this, is I think that Ari Aster needs to sort of break out of this uh, kind of storytelling trope because he did this in his short movies too, of talking about family trauma and using the horror as sort of an allegory for either mental illness or um a breakup or whatever i kind of want to see him do something different i want to see him swerve on his next movie because this sort of felt like hereditary part two in some ways um and i did appreciate it much more on the second watch but that those are just my main thoughts um i, I would really like to see him do something a bit different yeah man we'll see i mean you know we'll, we'll see what he does he's playing with house money i know that wasn't as beloved as hereditary but i think it got a decent response and also a24 will put out anything he does you know i'm not worried yeah. about it so. yeah that's like one of the few movies they've actually personally produced and everything yeah I'm pretty sure um so yeah he's 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 their boy it's a very it's one of the most memed movies of the year also um, to its oh, credit, so that's unfortunate. I hate that we live in that time because that like, poor woman acted her goddamn heart out, and like <laughs> they just use it for memes. That's fucking terrible. This whole world's going to hell. Anyway, Max, what's your number ten? Uh, my number ten is The Irishman, which I assume is higher up on your list, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, but but not as high as you think. Uh, no. But but yeah, whatever. Let's. I mean, my, do you want me to tell you where it is, or should we just wait? We can wait. We can wait for your for your list, unless okay, it's well, like the very next one. I mean, even on then. Number nine, then, and you can lead us off on that one. Okay, number nine. I've got um, Manos, uh, which is an Alejandro Landis movie from Colombia. Um, I don't know anything about this director. I know he's made a couple other movies. Um, do you know anything about Manos? Did you get to see this? Uh, no, I know what the I know what it's about, but I have not seen that movie. Okay, so this is kind of what I was talking about in terms of um, when you were talking about tigers are not afraid, and it's almost like the children's imaginations are sort of taking over um, in the midst of a real uh, sort of tragic conflict um, or a real world uh, situation. Um, And you are essentially thrust into this whole new world without explanation. Um, We open up on this sort of group of what looks like teenagers these teenage like children um with assault rifles on a mountaintop holding a white woman prisoner in a in a abandoned building and as the movie goes along you realize these are actual child soldiers that isn't communicated right away you think that maybe they're playing dress up or maybe this is imaginary or something and what you come to find out it is, it is very much not the movie gets into like their sort of weird social structure and like the structure of this military or whatever you don't know much about the conflict or what country they're fighting for um and it sort of follows uh, much like ad astra does a hearts of darkness sort of um structure in which they move deeper and deeper into the jungle as the movie goes on and sort of go more and more feral and native they get disconnected from communications with their with their commanding officer and you see these children go from playful adolescents who are experimenting with sex and love and drinking and whatever 
into something much, much uglier. Uh, the movie, like just through sound and image, not very much dialogue, uh, communicates uh, a descent into madness and like just sort of the toll that war takes on people, specifically on children. Um, and it's equal turns funny, like it has characters with names like Smurf and Rambo um, and horrifying. And the final shot is one of the most stunning, like shook me in my seat uh, shots that I've seen in a movie. Because up until that point, I was like, I don't know how to feel about this. I don't know how to feel about this. And then that final shot was just one of those perfect moments that sort of ties everything together. Like everything comes into focus. Um, I can't recommend this fucking movie enough. It's so good. And it flew under my radar for most of the year or two. Yeah, this is one of those things where like Instagram kept showing me this fucking preview uh, with an Alejandro Iñárritu quote. Mm. And I was just like, what the fuck is this? And uh, yeah. I always skipped it. And then one day I was busy and I didn't skip it. And I saw the trailer. I'm like, yo, what the fuck is that? Yeah. Like, it looked awesome, dude. Uh, and so hey. I'm disappointed I haven't been able to see it. But I'm glad you did. I'm glad you ranked it so highly. Um, yeah, no, it, it really is great. And it, it, it is haunting as hell. Um, it's got this wonderful score by um, Miko Levi, who did uh, Under the Skin um a few years back which is also one of the best scores i've ever heard and this was probably the best score that i heard in 2019 just this very very strange and very different from what she did in under the skin as well right. um and the cinematography on top of that i don't know who did it but holy shit uh contender so yeah really check out monos if you haven't seen it it's wonderfully entertaining too awesome uh, this is going to prove what's wrong with our whole society. You're telling me a beautiful story about the human condition and the cost of war and our, the totality of our destruction and stuff. And mm -hmm. I'm going to talk about fucking hipsters and East LA, man. Uh, <laughs> number nine for me uh, is Under the Silver Lake. Um, oh, that's my number eight. So ooh, this lines up pretty well. We can, yeah, yeah, okay. I'm glad that held up. Uh, your your list is so fucking ever shuffling, and I like that you're like, let's be honest, eight. That's like a or under the silver so lake, though. Silver lake, yeah. <laughs> you stay and uh, put. Well, do you want to wait until we get to yours, or do you just want to get into it? Because, I mean, my my next one would just literally be under the silver lake anyway, okay. so we might as well just talk about well, it. Well, let's get into it. Under the silver lake for me. All right, so this is from the director of It Follows, which I believe is David Robert Mitchell, right? Right. Mm -hmm. I, the three name fuckers I can't stand them. No, you, you um, nailed it man you gotta believe in yourself more yeah alright uh, well, so <laughs> third film by him uh, but follow up to It Follows It Follows was like this indie darling that came at the right time right we got like the Babadook and we got It Follows and we got what was the other big one and I always fuck up when we do this The Witch right and The Witch we got yeah all of those kind of in, in a uh, back to back to back to back thing um, and it's been so interesting, Max, I'm sure you'd agree, right? Because we just talked about Ari Aster. We came a little bit later with Hereditary, but still, uh, the, the second films of those people, uh, I know this is technically a third film, but in a lot of ways, like he started playing with house money. He was like, I'm a real filmmaker now. I have clout. I can do whatever I want to do for my second movie. Um, right. And he crafted a strange like really really truly strange and not affected strangeness just like strange in some of the decisions it makes um neo-noir uh specifically la noir um, mm -hmm. instead of having like jack nicholson looking classy as fuck with venetian blinds so we get andrew garfield 
just playing like a silver like hipster who gets drawn into this really and weird the we, we should really say yeah like the worst kind of silver like hipster like the the, the introduction to this character or the second scene of this character is him spying on and leering at women you know at the swimming pool in his apartment complex and he does that throughout the course of the entire movie um he just plays this sort of trashy worst version of a hipster bro in his early 30s not reckoning with the fact that he needs to grow up and never really changes for the better by the way by I the mean, way they arguably does but they do these little examples of that by the way but which they play for comedy I remember that and that's what's some, something i really love about this watch this movie i've watched it, i think five times now yeah same um, here it's hypnotic there's something about it and we talk about the first time we watched it where i'm just like dude i don't know if this is a masterpiece or it's terrible but i am i'm like yeah, you had, you had seen it before me and you told me that. You said, I don't know if this is a master, uh, masterpiece or if it's terrible or whatever. Uh, I'm curious to hear what you think of it. And like for about two thirds of the movie, I was kind of on the side and not great. Um, and then a scene happens in it, uh, the songwriter scene, which is probably the scene of the year. And I know I've said that about a couple of scenes, but this is one of those scenes where it's like, again, snaps into focus what the movie is trying to do and what it's trying to say. And this is a movie that sneakily has a lot to say. I think about Hollywood. I think about young men. I think about, you know, fame in general and how it's kind of a form of prostitution. Um, it's got a lot going on, but manages to never feel bogged down. Yeah, I think I think the thing I really like about it is it has a lot to say and its protagonist is someone who's too lazy to say anything. You were talking about right. how he's stuck in this arrested development. There's a scene that's played for laughs, but when you watch it on subsequent rewatches, you're like wow, that's just like a, a way that he tells you where he is as a person. So like mm. some kids are vandalizing his car. It's a non-essential scene, but some kids are vandalizing his, vandalizing his cards and he catches them. And like any of us, we're adults. If mm -hmm. a 14-year-old's like, I'm pissed. I'm sure. going to try to get some information out of him. Uh, I'm not going to punch a child, <laughs> which he does. Right. Just like, because in his mind, he's like, yeah, like he's 30, but he doesn't think he's you know what i mean he's like just stuck in this fucking place now uh, that's just a character thing which they do a lot of great subtle character work like you say they have a lot to say the main driving point is just that uh he spends one night with a uh, uh a girl in his apartment complex uh, mm -hmm. and it's really innocuous like they kiss but they just watch old movies i think they're watching uh how to marry a millionaire right right uh and then they're like i'll see you tomorrow and he's really smitten with her it's actually beautiful it's like childhood uh playground romance right because nothing mm -hmm. fucking happened uh and then he goes to see her the next day and her apartment's completely cleared out and this sends him down the rabbit hole so to speak of every weird hipster corner of Silver Lake and, uh, you know, Griffith Park and Los Feliz and shit like that. Right. It turns into kind of a private detective movie, um, equally equal parts, Mulholland Drive and The Big Lebowski. Like if you mashed those two movies together, you might get some version of Under the Silver Lake in the best way. Like it's funny, but also very surreal and very strange, but it's got this classic kind of Bernard Herrmann's score, it feels like an odyssey into like these mysterious corners of LA in which every scene takes place in a different location. It almost never returns except for his apartment to an, another spot, um, which makes it all the more memorable. And it's just like this assortment of strange LA characters. Yeah, my last thing I, I want to say on it uh, is that Again, he was playing with house money. He got to turn that in. It went to cans. It didn't get a great, great response. And they said, hey, we're yeah. going to shelve this. Go back. Work on it. Uh, and they gave him a year to work on it. And he turned in the same 
edit and i really commend them for it not as a, like a fuck you to the studio right because it's a24 yeah. or, or whoever ended up doing it right but <clears throat> i i just mean that like i'm proud that he he really believed in his artistic vision and when i've watched it there's a reason go to the fucking reddit page man like yeah. people have lost their goddamn minds trying to decipher a movie that i think he purposely put so many symbols in just to right because this is about an aimless main character who um follows a bunch of symbols and clues and gets lost in this rabbit hole of trying to decipher a code and in turn the movie is doing the same thing to the obsessives in its audience um which i thought was really funny because the point of the movie is that he should really just be living his life and paying his bills and figuring out how to like pay his rent on time well, and that's what's like really beautiful and sad about it at the same time, right? Is because he's yeah. so adrift and he's so lost that he's obsessed with finding these patterns, right? Like we're all mm-hmm. apes. Like our minds are, are warped to to recognize patterns, right? We reward right. ourselves for being able to see that. And he thinks that he's seeing some sub society, right? Which should be like you're crazy mental illness yeah. you know what i mean and i'm not going to spoil it but it's very interesting where the story goes and also the emotional backdrop right like mm-hmm. he may or may not be a fucking dog serial killer like i love that the film doesn't really talk about it but in a way if he mm-hmm. is you're sort of like wow he's the victim here which i feel like is such a manipulative tool <laughs> that the film does that i'm a dog lover so yeah um, it would be higher on my list if we didn't have like just truly incredible, like competent, competent, like. Competent, yeah, but you know? we, we should, yeah, we should say that like I have seen this movie more than I've seen any other movie from last year. Um, and for a reason, if you like Alfred Hitchcock, if you like any L.A. noir like Chinatown, The Big Lebowski, Mulholland Drive, L.A. Confidential, it's all of those things all rolled into one package without feeling too referential at the same time. It's very much its own thing. Right. Um, um, very consistent in tone. I can't recommend it enough. Like, don't hold back. It's super funny too. Yeah, this is. I think that's the highest nine. That's like a nine with a like. You know, when you weight your GPA in high school and shit, you're like, mm-hmm. yeah, that nine took like a couple AP classes and like at least <laughs> one honor class. Like, that's how I feel about Under the Silver Lake. I'm like obsessed with it. Uh, so go watch it. Anyway, um, that was my number nine. Your number eight was Under the Silver Lake, so I can just yeah. go into mine, which is good. Which is uh, the farewell. Mm, um, which I did not see. This is like the one movie on your list I didn't see, unfortunately. Right. Um, which I'm glad to have something to contribute. Uh, I, such a weird movie for a couple of reasons, uh, mm. but a lovely, lovely movie. One, I've never really liked Aquafina just because the couple of things I've ever seen was like that My Vag music yeah. video. Uh, uh, my, my main beef with her is that her name is Aquafina. Right. Especially like, come on, man! Following Bojack, celebrating your shit. Like, what's your, what's your, not your Christian name? I guess I don't know. Yeah. Like, well, also just that there was a sexy dolphin pop star in Bojack Horseman Christina named Aquafina. Sextina Aquafina. <laughs> so it's hard to take Aquafina seriously, but I hear she's actually wonderful in this. I also think she's in that show as a character, not that character. As Aquafina. No, that would be amazing. That'd be make too much sense. But no, so what's interesting about her is like for being such a provocateur, and obviously this isn't like her, she didn't write or direct, that was Lulu Wang, but um, it's one, it's PG, dude, which I was like, when's the last time a PG movie came out that wasn't yeah, like... that came on your radar and, you know, wasn't was like great. a Shrek movie. And I'm yeah. not talking like 80s PG when like fucking Temple of Doom was PG and like Back to the Future and there's like right. a son of a bitch every other line, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I'm talking about like, yeah, this is a straight up PG movie. And so the basic conceit is just like, um, this family finds out that um, their matriarch, right? Like the, uh, the, the grandmother, the glue of the whole family has cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and they are like you know recent transplants like they moved from china but aquafina was born here in america so they have that like weird little disconnect sort of deal uh and so back in china like when you get this kind of news you don't tell the person who has cancer there's this really weird taboo for for two reasons right one they're uncomfortable talking about mortality right secondly uh it's just the idea that it's not the cancer that kills you it's the worry about knowing about the cancer right obviously Mm -hmm. not true but i've heard people say that too it's like if i don't know i'm probably going to be mentally in a better place right if i can stay Mm -hmm. in a better place mentally longer i'll be better i don't know uh so that's like the premise of it it's struggling with the entire family including the doctors which hippocratic oath aside i don't think they can do that uh let's just strike that away for a minute so i can enjoy the movie they're all on the side of not saying something. So they make this like elaborate, oh, there's going to be a wedding. So the whole family can come in and say goodbye to her, but she doesn't know that she's dying. (laughs) And it's this like, really? I thought it was going to be like, all right, let's just see what happens here. And it ends up kind of fucking flooring you, man. Like it's really beautiful, really personal, um, subversive too. in a couple Mm -hmm. of like scenes, like there's, and the other weird thing is like the last act is way longer than you would imagine. Like they spend a lot of time kind of uh, playing within the ceremonies and shit like that. And like there's speech after speech and each speech does add this different degree. And it's like weird because you feel like a third act should have some propulsive element to it and not yeah. just like people just talking around. And there's a lot of talking on this, dude. It's really amazing. Uh, the, uh, the other thing I want to say is that they do this really good conversation about was the American dream really even worth it? Like we're talking about two generations in now like what it means to immigrate and be here and be an asian american and all that stuff and it was really fucking pretty man like really pretty and really well um directed as well so if oh, you get nice. a chance please watch it as soon as you can i really really enjoyed it man. i will i will yeah it's it's on my to watch list uh, there were a few movies i should note that i just did not get a chance to see this year that was one of them also, Ashes, The Purest White, and Elephant Sitting Still, and um, Long Day's Journey Into Night, I also didn't get to see. Yeah, it's so. on the list too, man, but we're going to get there. Definitely, man. Um, all right, well, let's move on to number seven. Max, what did you have for number seven? So I've got The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Um, uh, really and this quickly, is on your list, higher up. Five, number five oh shit! Okay, well we can we can save that discussion. Do you mind? Because I, I have some things, and I just want to make sure we're coming at it at the same point. Is that okay? Sure. Of All right. Cool. So what's your uh, number seven? My number seven is The Irishman, uh, and I don't want to spend forever talking about this because there's obvious things. We've we've also already reviewed it on our Oscars thing for sure. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but I just want to say, obviously, like there's a couple of those that we can apply. I do want to do deep dives with the other ones. The Irishman. Marty's Marty. I'm, it, it, it's, it's an opus, but I don't think people are going to see that now. Uh, what it is, is this really beautiful um, film that allows really great, small, meditative performances from some mm-hmm. of our greatest actors, specifically Joe fucking Pesci, who is uh, sitting it out for the last Joe motherfucking years. Pesci. Well, he comes, I mean, here's the thing. He did what? The, the good shepherd or something in 2006 and that was kind of it and then it was like 99 he was out right so it's like Mm -hmm. we've gotten two performances from him in the last 25 years basically for him to come back and to do something i've never seen him do to honestly make me cry at times to be uh to be scary in a different way while being Mm -hmm. soft it was something i'd never seen before the nero the same thing all the performances are really really great the cgi is or not the cgi the uh, de-aging is a little distracting at times but it never takes away from the story 
I'm, I, I, I'm thrilled that I still get to watch Martin Scorsese films, dude. Like, so yeah. it's, it's really hard for me to take it away. I just think on an emotional level, while there are certainly emotions there, it didn't strike some of the same chords uh, as some of the other films. What are your thoughts? Yeah, um, I think I said it on our Oscars thing, but it definitely feels, and I said it earlier too, this definitely feels like an old man's movie. And this is coming off of a career, you know, he's been making movies pretty steadily, you know, at a pretty steady clip. And he's never once felt like an old filmmaker, like an old man was behind the camera. His movies always have an urgency and an energy and a you know, a, a vibrancy. Um, and I'm not just talking about uh, Wolf of Wall Street, you know, things like Silence or Shutter Island or, you know, going back to even Gangs of New York, you know, he never slowed down in the way that his contemporaries did, like Francis Ford Coppola. He's always felt like a vital guy. And that's not to say that the Irishman doesn't feel vital, but it does feel for the first time, like Martin Scorsese is looking back at his legacy and looking back at his career and looking towards you know, the end a little bit, because this very much feels, you know, through the prism of a mobster movie, this very much feels like a movie about death and a movie about letting go and looking back at your past. Dude, it's on his mind. You didn't see silence, right? You haven't had a chance. I haven't had a chance. No. Yeah. I mean, it's on his mind. Like he's definitely thinking about it. And I think that it's, there's something to be said about that because he is looking back as opposed to always doing this next level thing. He's always Mm -hmm. moving the needle uh and it was impressive at the older he got we were wondering when that cliff was going to come this certainly is that like if this is the cliff holy shit he's going to be great for forever i really think he's going to be like a robert altman he's going to die on set you know what i mean like i, I don't think marty's ever going to retire uh but mm-hmm. it, we, it's just making us realize our own like limited time that we have left with him as a filmmaker uh so I think that's, I mean, if you, get, if you want to hear more in depth, go check out the Oscar episode. I don't want to just spend too much time on that because there are other films we haven't talked about yet. Um, yeah. Let's move on to number six, which for me is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Man. What was it on for you? Uh, that was number 11 for me. Number 11. So there, here's a big disparity. All right, not as big as Midsummer, but, but like, it's a big disparity. <laughs> Um, and I do want to be clear. I do like Midsummer. I talked a lot of shit, but I yeah. do really like it. Um, but yeah, uh, watching your subtitled films, be a well, piece of shit. Jesus, uh, <laughs> don't worry. Like my my top three, you're gonna like it. Uh, but so um, yeah, man. Once upon a time in Hollywood. Look I, again. We talked about it during the Oscar episode, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. I will tell you uh, that I watched it a third time on Oscar night. Had a really emotional response to it that I hadn't had the first time. Like mm-hmm. each time I discovered something else I really liked about it, um, you know, filmmaking's immaculate, all that stuff. But just the emotions were always there. And it's something I guess I didn't see the first time because we're so conditioned by Tarantino to expect genre, to expect this random act of violence to happen now to propulse the story. And once we realize we're not playing by the rules that he's established, that's the most exciting thing about it. This is at once a 100% a Tarantino film and also at once nothing like his other movies and that's what's thrilling about it was being in this new territory uh so watching it for the third time just like watching sharon tate watch herself on screen like when she's doing the fight scene and then now Mm -hmm. we're cutting to bruce lee training her and you see her and it's just like not only is it beautiful because that's her watching herself do it but it's like as a filmmaker quentin is like weaving these things so fucking like with such a deft hand and i used to say he used to say all the time, he's a better writer than he is a director. He's a competent director, but he steals. But this was the first time where I'm like, yes, he's still paying homage, but he's doing his own thing. 
yeah, I, I think he's grown as a director too, like yeah. since Kill Bill, but especially like it gets a lot of shit as being his worst movie, which I disagree with. I think that's Django. Um, but uh, Hateful Eight, um, I think was sort of like not a titanic leap, but it, it was sort of the, the point in which I started seeing him as a director you know, like a real ass director where he was making choices that weren't just referential to shots in other films. Um, and this felt the same way. There are those driving scenes in Los Angeles that everybody talks about for good reasons, um, where he's completely reassembled, you know, the strip in, you know, Los Angeles and everything and uh, uh, brought back all these neon signs and all the period cars. And there's not an inch of 2019 to be found in the frame. Um, he does all these... CGI. Yeah, and all without CGI, and he does these wonderful, like, kind of, I don't even know how he does them, if they're boom or drone shots, where it's, you know, sort of sweeping over, he does it a couple times where it goes over the roof of Rick Dalton's house and into the backyard of Sharon Tate, or when it's uh, going over the sort of screen, the drive-in movie theater screen over to Brad Pitt's sort of shitty trailer. Um, There's such a great sense of place, and it's very specific. And for the first time, if you've ever watched, like, YouTube clips or podcast clips, of Tarantino talking about other people's movies. He's a really wonderful movie critic. And like, if, if this guy had a second life after he ends his career, I'd love to see this dude just have a regular fucking movie review show and like just talking about with movies. Quentin Tarantino on movies. Yeah. Like, Cause yeah. <laughs> as grading, as grading as the guy is like, he is so passionate and convincing about film and usually about film that I'm not familiar with. And this movie kind of felt like the first time where he was making a movie about, just his love of movies you know right. in a specific way where it was in the text and not just the subtext we um that man we got pain and glory you know we got roma last year i mean and, and i know those are different but they are coming from a same similar like sentiment sentimental place you know what i mean yeah uh, sure and so I, I don't know i'm really excited i don't i think he's bullshit about retiring i hope not because i think we're now just starting to know who he is weird comparison right. man kobe bryant came into the league i like to pepper in a sports analogy for Max. Kobe Bryant came into the league, right? Everyone criticized him because that dude was literally a Michael Jordan clone. Like, he did everything like Jordan. He did the dribble, the shoot, the fadeaway, everything like him, right? And Mm -hmm. he was amazing. But then that back half of his career, like, he was like, I'm fucking Kobe Bryant. Like, he, and he became his own kind of person, you know what I mean? His Mm -hmm. own player. And it was equally fucking exciting and wonderful. And it's like, he just, Tarantino just, became kobe bryant man <laughs> like right. he needs, to, needs to keep at it because i think like whatever we have ahead of us especially like he's gonna have a kid and i'm mm-hmm. just so interested what actual attachments in the real world does to a man like that he's get even more violent like, and referential like, <laughs> he gets less sentimental somehow <laughs> all yeah, right who knows? that's all i wanted to say what's what time in hollywood is uh my number six film uh, nice. All right, so you're number seven, my number five, Lost Black Man in San Francisco. Um, oof, this movie, man. This movie was a lot of things, and it's a lot of things that specifically because of my friendship with you. And, you know, mm-hmm. every now and then when I don't, like, want to yell at you for liking fruit or something, uh, I let my guard down, and I'm like, Max, you're, you're my best friend. You're my brother. You're, you're, my relationship with you is one of the most fulfilling things in the entire world. And we've known each other for so long and like as children too Mm -hmm. and uh, we've had that kind of like profound friendship even then i think we grew up at a time where like masculinity as it were 
was defined yeah. by certain things. It was defined by toughness and about mm-hmm. like never showing any kind of soft side, never being vulnerable, never doing any of that stuff. And, and it, this movie is like really fucking pretty because it's largely about those friendships. It's about being yeah. vulnerable and about being okay, being vulnerable, being embarrassing. Listen, there's, you know, the scene where they go into the house and like, they're just like having a gay old time. Like mm-hmm. I thought about that time when we were kids and like no one was home and we just danced to Franz Ferdinand for no reason. And I'm thinking like if my dad, like think about this now, like my dad being yeah. a product of the sixties, he'd be like, fucking gays, like what a got right. kid for but like we're kids. And <laughs> right. we loved life. And so right. and we felt like okay because we were friends. And so this this movie like really did a lot for me that's just on the character level. When you mm-hmm. talk about the actual, like the idea of the people who built great cities and the infrastructure is no longer being allowed to live in those places uh, is, is another tragedy. You live in Brooklyn. I used to live in Brooklyn, man. Like we know about gentrification. And it's this yeah. heartbreaking fucking thing. Um, right. God, there was another point I wanted to make about it that I loved. Okay. Also first scene, holy shit, economy of filmmaking. That's going to be the buzzword. Uh, mm-hmm. That first scene does so much because one, it shows you, right? And we've been like in a car ride, except it's not a car ride. We go from their world to what their normality is, to the familiar faces, uh, they, to, to getting into like uh, what San Francisco is now and how they are strangers in that world. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like they're leered at and stuff. Uh, but I also really like the, the hand thing. The hand thing got me. Like well, let, let's let's give it some context for people who haven't sure, seen I'm it. Sorry, like what I'm what sorry. the movie is about. No, yeah, there's there's a lot to love about this, and it's got a very dreamlike, gentle. Like gentle is the word that kept coming to mind when I was watching this, and it was so refreshing. It felt like such a palate cleanser. It was such a kind of like a a warm hug. This movie, but but it is about very serious things like gentrification, getting priced out of your own neighborhoods. Uh, the movie is about this man played by uh, Jimmy Fails, who also wrote the film. Um, and plays himself in the film and his best friend uh, Mont or Monty um, trying to restore his uh, grandfather's house that he says his grandfather built while other people still live in it. Um, And it's like this beautiful three story sort of like fairy tale looking house on I forget where in San Francisco, it's like on one of the famous sort of main drags in San Francisco. Um, and it's it's just this very wonderful, beautiful, sad story about a lot of things, about masculinity for sure, about friendship, um, about legacy too, about gentrification. It's true. Um, and yeah, like in that that opening moment, you're talking about like that skateboarding scene. Yeah, yeah, the skateboarding scene. Yeah, and it, which is so similarly to Brad Pitt uh, driving in Los Angeles, it gave me a similar feeling of just but in a different direction where it was just right. so dreamlike and instantly sort of gentle and strange um that i immediately sort of kind of fell into this world that jimmy fails was creating and i think the director is what joe talbot yeah uh yeah which i was gonna say like that like, just as an establishment like again not only not only does it bring me into like kind of the themes of the movie not, not only does it bring me into the aesthetic of the movie not only does this movie feel oddly magical realist even though it isn't but it kind of feels like right it. no it does uh, yeah yeah no i was just, I, it's just like 
the relationship of those two characters and to be able to do it like on a skateboard like when we were kids you'd have friends like on bikes and you would get on right. the pegs or whatever you'd ride on the pegs of the bike yeah and even that was like don't touch me bro <laughs> like, <laughs> but but this is like oh my god they have to be like some of them to hold each other and then yeah, they they're like to, right like, up on each other unison yeah. and i'm just like Jesus, like, well, I'm a hack, Max. <laughs> people, people are way smarter than I am. Um, and I can recognize that it's amazing, but I wouldn't have thought of that. And I just think it's a really, really, really wonderful film. Now, I hate to do this because I don't want to immediately be like, the other black film. Uh, is Waves on your list? Mm-hmm. Okay, good. We haven't got there. Or is it, yeah. Yeah, it's on my list. So I fucked up. I should have watched Waves. I was like, I want to watch Waves too. Did you Did you not watch Waves? I haven't watched it yet. No. Okay. Yeah, that's my number. That's uh, encouraging because I just love this one so much. Anyway, um, do you have anything else you want to say about it? Do you want to move right along, my friend? It's It's not really a movie that you can spoil in any way, but at the same time, I don't want to say any more about it. Much like a lot of these movies on the list, but I do want to give a shout out not only to Jimmy Fails for writing and acting in it and doing a wonderful job um, as like a new talent, like this is his first feature film, but also Jonathan Majors, who uh, plays his friend, who starts off the film as sort of quiet and sort of sensitive and has this really wonderful scene where he does a one-man show near the end that just broke my heart. Um, Really, like, one of the best performances of the year uh, by Jonathan Majors, and nobody talked about it because I guess it was an early release. It kind of got swept under the old rug. that was the problem. I mean, (laughs) yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm sure we could have let Tom Hanks just sit one of these uh, Oscar seasons out. You know, no as long as you, you're talking is. shit about Hanks, but like he hasn't been nominated in a minute. You know what I mean? Like, that's the thing. He's, I think mean, he got the Captain yeah. Philip nomination and that was like it for a long time. Or did he get Sully too? Fuck him. I think Fuck he got Tom Sully. Hanks. Yeah, he keeps Perfect. getting, yeah, he's the uh, he's Meryl Streep 2.0. Right, um, Tom Hanks, but, yeah, you're uh, wonderful. We get it. Like, you know, let somebody else have a shot. But yeah, no, Jonathan Majors, uh, one of the best performances of the year, one of the best movies of the year, and such a low-key movie, too. Unlike the rest of the movies on this list, which are, like, fucking devastating or weird or strange, this is, like, one of those just nice breaths of fresh air. Kind of similar to Pain and Glory. Very similar vibe. Yeah, uh, and last, I just want to say uh, Danny Glover, um, mm-hmm. who, as you pointed out, the man works. He just keeps yeah. working. Uh, yeah, just uh, he may be too old for this shit, but he keeps he's keeps definitely coming too back. Old for it, but he keeps coming back. That's the best thing about Danny Glover. But uh, honorable mention to Danny. Um, all right, man, uh, let's move on. Uh, number four, Max. What's your number four film? Uh, we never got to my number six. Oh, so what? Okay. Yeah, sure. you just kind of skipped right past that. Uh, number six, I got Waves. Uh, oh, speaking of which, there. okay. Ooh, yeah. Um, so Waves, you did not get a chance to see. Um, this is another one of those three named fuckers. Trey Edward Schultz uh, did this. He did It Comes at Night and Krisha uh, before that. Mm. And I, I have not seen. I actually really like It Comes at Night. Right. Yeah, which I have not seen either of those films. And after Waves, I definitely want to. Um, so the closest uh, comparison that I can make to Waves is actually a TV show you haven't seen called Euphoria, um, which I think a lot of people dismissed as sort of being like a generation X or Z, not X, like Z. What, what are we calling the newest generation? I don't know. Boomers, ironically. I'm calling them boomers now. <laughs> the, the new boomers generation, um, where it's just a bunch of teenagers, you know, in a hyper-realist sort of filmmaking style doing drugs and having sex and whatever. And it kind of evokes that similar vibe. It's maximalist filmmaking, like to the nth degree, 
from the opening moments, which is scored to Tame Impala's uh, Be Above It, um, it's just this montage of this young man. Um, and essentially the story is, it's about this young man who is a on the wrestling team. He has this sort of overbearing father played by Sterling K. Brown who wants his son and daughter to have the same opportunities that he has, but he's particularly hard on the son. And it's sort of about the tension that that creates in the family and about the son trying to live up to those expectations and possibly crumbling under the pressure. Um, and as the movie goes along, like it's just a, a wall-to-wall soundtrack that mixes with really wonderful score music from Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor. Um, it, it almost feels like an hour or so long music video, but it's all serving a very specific purpose because at the halfway point in this movie, much like in Hereditary, where there's a thing that happens in it, where you're like, okay, there's an hour of movie left. Where the fuck is this going to go? Something so shocking and so devastating happens in this movie. Um, And it puts everything that came before it into a bizarre and darker context that the second half of this movie has to swerve and do something completely different. And I hope I'm not spoiling too much when I say that the first half is about wounding you and the second half, and I've barely seen any other movie do this, the second half is about healing you. The tone becomes much gentler and more dreamlike and sort of softer. Uh, I wish you wouldn't have told softer. me this. I really wish I could have gone into that experience mm. without knowing. But. I don't know how else to review this movie and like tell you why it's special. Um, but definitely watch Waves. It's, uh, it's I believe in your word. If you say it's special, I'm like, it's, it's special. Like, I'll put that out. You want me to tweet that? Okay. I mean, I didn't tell you what happened. So uh, all I'll so say is fine. like it, it has a, <laughs> has a perspective shift uh, halfway through, which is really interesting. We spend more time with a background character who's background in the first half. Um, but it's this really wonderful, beautiful, heartbreaking, heartbreaking portrait of a family um, going through something. And that's all I can really say. I don't want to spoil anything about it, but Again, just really vibrant, in-your-face filmmaking for the first half that transitions into something much gentler and more complex in the second. Plays with things like aspect ratio, score, uh, wall-to-wall, one of the best soundtracks of the year as well. Um, So yeah, check out Waves. It it was emotionally devastating in ways I did not expect and beautifully shot. Well, fuck, man. That's amazing. Um, I I mean, I'm confused now. Hold on. Because what was that? That was your six or your seven? That was my six. All right, so what's your five? My five is Marriage Story. Ooh, okay, that's my four. So we can we can hash this out. Okay. Um, <laughs> I liked it. <laughs> All right, cool. <laughs> I mean, we, we've talked about this movie at length, um, especially in our Oscar podcast. Uh, not a whole lot of new things that I can say about it. Um, I don't know if you want to jump in, if there's anything that you've noticed. I've seen it about three times now. Um, and it's a movie that keeps getting a little bit better every time I see it, especially when paying attention to things like staging, when he decides to cut, when he doesn't, he very much shoots this in a very specific mannered way. And I was watching kind of one of those directors break down a scene from a movie things on YouTube. And it's a breakdown of the fight scene, the infamous fight scene, um, where there's this little detail that Noah Baumbach specifically points out where he leaves like Charlie, uh, Charlie is the son, right? Right. Yeah, he leaves the juice box in the corner of the frame as they're hugging uh, at the end of that terrible, terrible fight and says that even though he's not in the room, he's in the room. 
So it's like little details like that are scattered throughout the film. Um, it's just so well observed, so well acted, so well scored, so well written, so well directed. And I do want to say something that we didn't say in our Oscars thing. Um, it's got two back-to-back musical performances, the second of which is another one of my favorite scenes of the year. It completely like puts everything emotionally into context for Adam Driver's character. He does a song from Company, Staying Alive or mm-hmm. Feeling Alive. Yeah. Staying Alive. Um, yeah, dude. I mean, I, yeah, we, we said all of it on the, on, on the other podcast. I mean, Adam Driver's, I'm really excited we get you know, presumably 40, 50 years of performances from that guy. Like mm-hmm. he's only going to get more interesting. The more people are going to use them. And like already he's worked with uh, like Jim Jarmusch. He's worked with the Coen brothers, right? He's worked with Spike Lee. Like he's working with some fucking people. Wasn't he in like Lincoln or something? I don't know. He worked with, yeah, I mean, he was in Scorsese as well. Like the, right, the silence. Right. That's right. right. Yeah. Like, so people are just going to keep using them, dude. And I'm really excited about watching him. Also Noah Baumbach, keep making masterpieces. I love you. Um, well, let's move on from there, man. What's your number four? Uh, Parasite. Hmm. Still okay. All right. All right. Well. All right. All right. That's fine. Uh, we we'll, hold yeah. We'll we'll wait. We'll wait. Yeah. We'll hold off on that one. What's yeah. your three? Um. Well, what's your number four? You already said number four. Marriage Story is my four. Oh, okay. Sorry. So my number three is The Nightingale mm. by Jennifer Kent. Wasn't able to see it, uh, but that is the director of The Babadook, and it was a it long follow up. How was it? Uh, I mean, it's my number three on the list, so it was just all right. Um, no, Jennifer Kent did The Babadook um, in 2014. Um, and you could argue that The Babadook is one of the most important movies of the past 10 years, if you really look at it in like the scope of recent film history. That sort of uh, was the precursor to this new wave of thoughtful art house horror films. Um, this sort of horror. Yeah. yeah, this sort of like A24 style of horror, but I still contend that The Babadook maybe did it best. Um, if you haven't seen it, and if you're in any way put off by the fact that it's a horror movie about a monster, um, please, please see it, because it's about so much more than that, right? It's about yeah, depression. Yeah, I mean, that, he's it's, dapper as fuck. He's got a top hat. He's always well-dressed. I mean, The Babadook right. is all about presentation, you know what I mean? Well, it's very much like an ode to like silent film, too, and it's like a an ode to... Um, well, it's it's great. I don't want to get too much into the Babadook, but Jennifer Kent is a wonderful director and spent five years or four, I guess this is technically a 2018 release that got released here in 2019, um, making her follow-up. And The Nightingale, when it first came out, I don't know if you heard the buzz around it, but that it was very hard to watch. Yeah. And it very much is. This is a hard movie to recommend. Um for that reason uh the basic wraparound premise is it's the 18th century in tasmania and there is a military outfit that has indentured servants these white indentured servants who have committed crimes and they're in an indentured servitude to this military outfit specifically this military commander who has been sexually abusing the wife in this family um and the movie has in the first 15 minutes two pretty graphic rape scenes. Um, and there's a third later on that is one of the most disgusting things I've ever seen. But unlike a lot of movies, and it's interesting what Jennifer Kent does with it, I've never seen a rape scene done this way before. It's shot from the woman's perspective. I think I'm going to name this episode that, by the way, but go on. 
Uh, you just love putting rape in the and title. I'm um, put your attribution of the quote. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. But no, uh, she films it from the perspective of this woman, this young mother. Um, and uh, it, it's interesting because it'll you'll see her face. It's a focus on her. There's nothing about it that's exploitative or sexualized or anything. It's just a terrible thing that's happening to her. And through sound and image, it's more suggested than shown. But that makes it even worse somehow. Um, basically, something terrible happens to her child and her husband. And the rest of the movie is about this woman gathering herself up, shoring herself up, finding an aboriginal guide to track down these men that did something terrible to her family and kill them. And it's this sort of dark journey of the soul into the wilds of Tasmania. Um, and it's so, so thoughtful the way it's done. It's sort of a meditation on violence and, you know, abuse and a woman's place in society and all those other things. But, um, but something that if you watch the sort of behind the scenes uh, that Jennifer Kent talked about um, is that each location, because Tasmania is so geologically diverse, uh, sort of represents the main character's emotional state as she travels along this Aboriginal guide. The Aboriginal guide, by the way, is wonderful. Um, and I don't know his name and I feel bad. I also don't know the lead actress's name. But this is another one of those fearless fucking performances where she starts off as a victim and then sort of shores herself up, but never, never really loses that sense of guilt and uh, sort of uh, loss and tragedy within herself. Um, it's a, again, it's a hard movie to recommend because it's a movie about rape and revenge, but it's so much more than that. Um, and I can't recommend it enough. It, it, it's sort of a movie that I think will stick with me forever. Uh, that's bold, man. And it's really encouraging because she made such an impression with that first movie and it was so important. Uh, mm -hmm. It's really good to know that like, especially because like the rushed follow-ups are always like those really scary pitfalls for these directors. And by the way, just to talk about the Hollywood system, it's not like she's she's David Robert Mitchell. You know, she's not 33 years old. She's not like th this young upstart. Like, she's been in the game for right. a minute, dude. And, like, now she's getting this opportunity. And I love that she didn't jump to the first uh, opportunity she had because you know people came to her. I think, like, like Marvel was courting her at some point, dude. Yeah, I believe they were to, like, make some female-led super movie, superhero movie or something thank like that. So, it, that. yeah, thank <laughs> God she didn't do, like, Captain Marvel or some shit, oh, and it, uh, which awful. is my number two on the list now. Hell yeah. Um, <laughs> and number one, Avengers Endgame. Dude, um, all heroes wear capes, Max McCarthy. Um, <laughs> yeah, but no, um, the, the Nightingale, fucking wonderful. Please, please uh, check it out if you give a shit about good movies, because it's one of them. It's one of them. It's right on. certainly one of them. <laughs> Can we leave off? <laughs> That's what the magic of editing, Max. Uh, where did we leave off? We left off at number three, which you had already said what your number three was. What was it again? The Nightingale. Oh, that's right. Again, the magic of editing. Let's just take it from the top. How about that? How about that? Sure. Uh, so, yeah, we heard your number three. Uh, let's do my number three, which is something that was uh, right out of the wire. It's a little French mm -hmm. movie. Mm -hmm. It's not the French submission for best movie which is mm -hmm. weird that went to Le Mis which was cool because that's like a, a black Frenchman it's the first time a black Frenchman has been nominated I think that is super special however this movie was lit dude uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire did you watch this mm -hmm. movie? 
Yeah, it's well, my number just, two on on my list. Oh, it's your number two, so we can dive into it. Then you don't mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I do mind actually. Let's skip it. <laughs> uh, do you want to do you want to tell the recap, or do you want me to do it, or do you want to? Um, like in terms of what the plot is about. Um, yeah, yeah like the the the, the hook of the plot is that a uh you know it takes place in France in what the 18th century, 17th century. It's one of them centuries, one of them old-timey centuries. And this um, female portraitist, um, and they get into this later, but back then, you know, that was a pretty rare thing, and they were typically only allowed to paint other women, not men. Um, This female portraitist is hired um, uh, to essentially do a portrait of this young woman who is... Um, supposed to be wed or engaged to this man that she's never met. And the portrait is, the intention of the portrait is for it to, basically for the man, for him to say, okay, yeah, I want to marry her. I don't know about that, Ugo, I guess, is what they were going for back then. But basically to see what his betrothed looks like. Um, The problem is this woman who's uh, going to be married off uh, doesn't want her portrait taken. So they've had portraitists come in and come in and come in, and she's refused to pose for any of them. So they bring in this woman uh, under the kind of false guise to be her companion on walks, and by studying friend. her face, yeah. yeah, and studying her her body and studying her hands and every piece of her, she's going to, from memory, uh, recreate this woman in portrait form. Um, and from there, as you can expect, a romance sort of blossoms. Um, and that's the basic setup, yeah. Weird, like, thing. So, like, I'm a big uh, Dante Alighieri guy, right? Like, Inferno. And what I really like about that is uh, the, the depiction of love in that. It's, like, his love for Beatrice is this really pure thing. Uh, mm-hmm. This certainly, like, is more carnal than that. But I like the idea that, like, uh, by the sheer fact that she has to study the curves of her face, the way her face looks different in the shadows and stuff like that, you know, mm-hmm. like the, uh, uh, how her fingernails are perfectly manicured and shit like that. Like she falls in love with this composition. It's mm-hmm. a really interesting thing, right? Because it feels like really pure uh, to the point where like, you know, not to spoil it too much. Like I really liked the fact that she ends up resenting the, painting <laughs> like because like not only because i mean because, because she gets told uh, that's not good uh but that in some way it seems like why the fuck did, am i i created this thing to give away to some man who doesn't know her you know what i'm saying not like i know her which i right. thought was like really fucking powerful and also incredibly well shot uh, i read somewhere that it was shot in ak Mm-hmm. Uh, which it was like seems unnecessary, but apparently it was a deliberate decision to try to get as much color uh, spectrum as they were able to, mm-hmm. which is like really really amazing to me. Um, yeah, and the color really does pop in yeah. not a high contrasty way. It's just very vivid reds, vivid greens, vivid blues, and it makes uh, just to get back to the general tone or feeling of the movie. Um, and the reason it's number two on this list ahead of things like you know Parasite or The Nightingale or whatever else um, movies I all loved, but this is sort of uh, beguiling in a weird way. It makes the act of just studying someone's face seem like the romantic thing in the world. Um, it is like just this really wonderful sort of love story um, that completely, I don't know about you, but it completely like kind of put me under its spell for the entire runtime of the movie, pretty much from the beginning. Um, and there's something I wanted to call attention to, too, other than the color is the sound design. 
um, because there's no there's no score music. Every all the music is diegetic um, right. and used very sparingly. Um, so really, all you have is this sort of bed of sound, you know. And from the beginning, when she's on the this little rickety boat to go see this this woman, uh, you hear the waves crashing against the boat and the boat rocking and creaking, and it continues through every piece of the film and lends it kind of uh, it, it, it makes it more of a sensory experience than other movies I've seen this year or other movies I've seen in general. And that, that sensory experience is what really does draw you in, at least for me. I don't know how you felt. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I think that's the whole thing. We've been saying this like weird, lucid sort of tone uh, that a mm-hmm. lot of these picks have, and this is one of them. Uh, I also want to like kind of spotlight, I think, like really powerhouse performances from both of those ladies, by the way. Yeah, like, very subtle really though. Yeah. Uh, well, that's what I'm saying. Like, that's what that's like. It's not bombastic. It's something yeah. else. And I was just really like, holy shit. Um, and right. I'm really unfamiliar with this filmmaker's work. So uh, I've only ever seen one other thing from her she did. And it was also um, about growing up and realizing this main character realizes that she's she's gay, um, which this is about two much more mature women sort of coming to that realization or coming to that understanding with each other right. called Water Lilies. Um, really good movie. Oh, um, it's more that. about awkward adolescence. And this is more about adult love. Um but yeah, like on paper, you everyone's seen this movie before. If you're familiar with foreign cinema in general, it's a tale of forbidden love and it's a period piece. And on paper, that sounds like the most unspecial thing that there is because I've seen that movie a hundred times. But this does so many things in its presentation um, that just sort of set it apart for me. Uh, I do want to spotlight, there is a scene kind of much like I've said about under the silver lake there is a scene about midway through and it's kind of a musical number in a weird way where they go to visit that uh, completely just it was kind of jaw-dropping for reasons i can't even articulate um there's a scene where they essentially go to meet these other women it's like a commune of women on this beach and they all start humming in unison until it builds and builds and builds and then other women start clapping and it turns into this musical number and it's just the most like breathtaking and strange uh, thing. Well, one of them that I've seen this year. Yeah. Yeah. I, really I, I gorgeous. Was say, the entire time I'm watching this and it's not a fair comparison and they're certainly not the same beyond maybe the initial aesthetic of it, but I thought the favorite really hard for some reason when I was watching this, but mm. where, and even though I love the favorite um, and just in terms of like how they would use natural light and stuff, because they would mm-hmm. kind of have to via the period and stuff. Uh, but that scene, the way they, mm. they used fire compared to the way the fire was using the favorite. I was like, holy shit, because like they did something with it. You know, it was right. like, a really powerful moment. In it. And I was taken aback. So also the last thing I see, it could be like recency bias, but the fact that it's a number two on your list, and number three on mine is a pretty good sync up. I'm glad. Cause yeah. I don't even think I, well, I told you right before we recorded that I watched this. I would give you no indication where it landed on my list. <laughs> right. uh, but yeah, dude, I mean, that's, that's really exciting. And I, I you know, it's a movie where I feel like it's still not getting a lot of attention. I mean, I don't know if it's yeah. easily or available anywhere either. Well, yeah, it, it actually just got a wide release on Valentine's Day. So it should be playing in a theater near you. Um, and we should spotlight just quickly at the end of this where you can find these movies on our list. Uh, sure. If we can, if we can just yeah. take a second at the end. Um, but yeah, you can find it in theaters right now. It's a neon release who also released Parasite. Parasite. Um, doing some pretty wonderful stuff. But yeah, it's a movie that I didn't expect to love as much as I did, but it completely caught me by surprise. 
surprise. And the final uh, moment, I don't even know quite how they pulled it off, um, but it's just fucking stunning. Um, I'm I'm really intrigued to see again, man. I mean, it's, I'm fucking repeating myself now, and I'm sorry, but like, just the amount of foreign films, like, out of my top three, mm-hmm. two out of the top three are subtitled films. Out of the top fifteen, there's more than that. You know what I mean? Especially right. for you. And it's just like, Jesus, man, we're we're in such a great moment of cinema right now. Also, yeah. weird shout out. We're not getting paid by Shutter. We're not getting paid by Criterion <laughs> Channel either. But Criterion's fucking lit, dude. Because uh, oh, all those fine little things all the time, especially like Martin Scorsese has like the cinema of the world thing. And mm-hmm. so like I'll watch these movies and I'm like, oh shit, this is amazing. This is an African movie. Oh shit, this is a Greece, uh, Greek movie. You know? Yeah. No, if, if you want to do deep dives into stuff, I mean, we're living in the best time in human history to do deep dives in the cinema. If you want to, it's all yeah. there waiting for you right now. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think that that's, it speaks to, you know, Quentin Tarantino said about this year before we get into our number ones of the year and your number two number two yeah Yeah, yeah. um he did say about this year that this was the year that you know independent uh cinema kind of fought back you know um or where smaller budgeted movies fought back and he's right i mean look at all these really wonderful movies that we got to see most of them in wide release um or in like wide streaming platforms and everything like i think that's pretty great uh that the narrative right now is that all there is is marvel and it seems like that's what the conversation is dominated by. But if you know where to look, you can find some really great stuff. Well, I'm really glad you brought that up. Moving on to number two, uh, which shifted because if you had asked me last week, but I've had a change of heart because I've rewatched this movie. Uh, mm. Number two is Parasite, which is the other neon release. Okay. Oh. And when that one um, <laughs> Twitter and the worst of human beings were just like, I've seen all the Oscar movies and none of them made me cry as much as Avengers Endgame hashtag nominate real movies and i'm just like mm. oh shit unlike the fake movie that is parasite <laughs> right right uh so like that really bothered me and, and i'm glad you're right it, it certainly what it felt like right like that the indie movie that the foreign film community the people who really are trying to preserve the shit are still in the game uh that we we took a puncher's chance you know mm-hmm. this is a, this is star wars and new hope and we're that we're that ship in the very beginning you know we're being chased by the giant fucking imperial ship but we're we're, we're fucking still in the game you know what i mean and, yeah and and look man if, if avengers endgame is your, is your thing and you were thrilled and moved by that then that's that's great and i don't want to take that away from you or even be shitty about it but i just want to say that like i know you do <laughs> but i do just want to say that you are shutting out and missing out on so many really wonderful movies that aren't just about escapism right. because at the end of the day that's what marvel is and it does it it does it well it does it you know, it's got it down to a science at this point. But as I hope our lists have kind of highlighted, there are a lot of really wonderful stories about a wide variety of things, things that I don't personally experience, but now I have some better emotional understanding of for having seen them. Roger Ebert, really quick, sorry, said that film is best used as a tool, as an empathy generator. It's something that can generate empathy in you um, on subjects that you previously knew nothing about. So yeah, if you're missing I, out on that, then that's a goddamn shame. One, uh, thank you for the Roger Deepert. He was near and dear to my heart for his contribution to criticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also just like every film is a window into a yeah. world. Every film is a window into a perspective, into a feeling. And if you keep your fucking windows locked, which may be smart <laughs> sometimes, right? I'm an yeah. man. 
I'm like where Richard Ramirez was, but right. Uh, but it's no, it's, it, it just come on, people, don't yeah. be fucking philistines. Like uh, and, expand your mind, and you're going to be rewarded. And I think Parasite is such yeah. an example of that. Just to quickly wrap it up, we talked about it on the Oscar thing. I I want to say that the uh, again. When we get to number one, the only reason it, it wins is for very personal reasons. Uh, if we're talking about like what is your job as a director, what is the experience of filming, like filmmaking, mm-hmm. uh, this was kind of everything to me. It absolutely deserved the Oscar wins. I'm very happy and proud of it. I'm so excited mm-hmm. to see what comes next. Um, I think it's a legacy, right? Because we're talking 92 years in the Academy without winning uh, a foreign right. film. So like its legacy is that it broke through that barrier. Now what comes next? And because mm-hmm. of people like Netflix who are already in the bung business, right? Like they're able to kind of leverage that. Like, you know what I'm saying? I'm just saying there's going to be a bidding war for whatever this guy wants to do next. And I hope much like Guillermo and uh, Inuritu and Cordon, right? But they, they pulled their resources. They got a lot of fucking Mexican and uh, South American films made. And I hope yeah. that that's the legacy of Parasite. Um, I want to move on to my number one, which be- I think by process of elimination, Max, because I haven't mm. heard this on your list. Either this didn't make your list or it's your number one movie. So let's Number one, Joker. It's <laughs> got everything. You know Joaquin Phoenix. I was going to do that joke. I was going to do it to piss you <laughs> off. And then you totally beat me to it. Uh, yeah, but what's your number one movie? Let's hear it. Um, the Lighthouse. Yeah, dude. It's the fucking it's, it's Lighthouse. It's not even close. It's not even fucking close. Well, because uh, when we had talked before, this was not the case for you. This was your number two of the year. Uh, yeah. What changed for you? Uh, okay, just from pure like experience, right? About like what... Not necessarily like, oh, what's the control of being a director, right? Being able to manipulate your audience and shit like that. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. And like Parasite is like, holy shit, next level. It's also this really beautiful inventive script, right? The Lighthouse is different. It's different in every way. One, it's basically a two-man show. That is it. That is all you get. There is no other conflict, really, right? There's no conflict in the movie. It's kind of a defiant, fucking impenetrable sort of thing to begin with. But it's anchored by two incredible performances. I think career best for Defoe, and I really want you to think about that. Also, Pattinson, who, as you said, is like, having a fucking moment man i would say the last couple of mm-hmm. years adam driver maybe is the only other better one you know what i'm saying like sure but he, the work he's been putting in lately has been really astonishing um the the aspect ratio like what's the film that you said earlier because it reminded me it seemed like it would be a good um piece. i was talking about bait by mark jenkin and it would be a really good double feature with the lighthouse okay. Yeah, yeah, it's just like the idea to play with that, but also to like to play back to what the emotional feeling of that was. You've mm-hmm. seen TV shows that are in four or three, right? Like that's native to you. Like when you're, you, right. your childlike viewing of it is in four or three. And even though it's weird, we've gone 16 by nine and shit now when you still see it, you're still kind of like, wait, what? You know, like you're attached to that thing because it brings an emotional, it, el- it elicits a response, right? Um and so I this think- is actually in a narrower aspect ratio than 4.3. So 4.3 is not a perfect square. This aspect ratio, and I forget what it is exactly, no, it's like but a it's one, more, one, yeah, it's closer yeah. to a perfect square. No, um, for sure. I'm just saying that like, even when we grew up, we were we were in the final kind of days of 4.3 as a standard for like TV definition. Yeah. And even when we watch those shows, like I go back and watch Golden Girls, like Golden Girls has a distinct feeling because it's in the 4.3. I mean, it's got the even... 
even the wire i mean was in four oh. three so rewatching that now is very interesting um how they how they did that and how the framing was sort of arranged around that because you have to do your your mise-en-scene or whatever where you place your actors and their actions within the frame in a very different way hmm. when you do a narrower aspect ratio and that's something they talked about when they were making this movie is that those actors were cramped together and they picked that particular aspect ratio too because they were like what would most highlight the height of the lighthouse what would sort of draw your eye upwards so that's why you get these sort of cavernous spaces where you see mostly ceiling and then the the actors are so small within the frame um yeah no it's a i i could speak for 40 minutes about why i love this movie i'm not going to um it's so wonderful in so many ways like they used uh the cinematographer i think his name is jaron blaschke um, found like this old, old uh, lens used in silent films um, for some scenes. Like they processed the film on actual black and white film stock and uh, processed it in a way that old silent films were processed. Um, so you can see every pore on the actors' faces, every color uh, of red is dyed black. Um, it's just this very nightmarish uh, but funny experience. Well, you're really speaking to it as well, which is that it, it, it came from an emotional place where like I have really fallen in love with silent film. I really mm -hmm. love with the genius of that. We talk about the economy of storytelling. You don't got yeah. words. Like these people fucking made masterpieces out of it. And yeah, the lighthouse has dialogue, but there are long stretches of it. Like in the recesses of my memory, if it's not for like Willem Dafoe, like giving some crazy monologue or or being mad that he doesn't like his lobster right like those things stand yeah. out but so much of it i remember silently like wordless yeah I remember, especially like, the first half of the film is just yeah. long stretches without any dialogue and you just hear the wind beating against the i mean you want to talk about sound holy yeah, shit oh it's just God. the constant yeah. blaring of that of that alarm from the lighthouse and the you know the waves crashing on the beach and the wind beating against their shitty little cabin um and how that deteriorates and gets louder as the film goes on, their mental state deteriorates too. Yeah, no, it's uh and I like that they don't great. hold your hand too. I like there's like yeah. I, told you, I had to walk out when when the when we see uh fucking Defoe to destroy the one of the boats or whatever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Remember I told you this? And, yeah. and, then, and then he convinces him like you just you just blew you you, you went crazy. <laughs> you, you, you started putting it on pens and people like walk right. out of that. And they're just I'm just like I like that they're not like holding your hand. It's not like an unreliable narrator. You could probably just assume what you saw is probably what happened that he's trying to fuck right. with. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Like it just it it buries you under a spell that is unrelenting. The direction is so fucking precise and sure yeah. it has to be because of the aspect ratio and let me just say one more thing there's a scene where defoe has to give this monologue as mm -hmm. something is happening to him and it has to be i think one of the one most disturbing things because mm -hmm. I, I started to feel claustrophobic i started to feel like i couldn't breathe as this thing is right. happening to him you know what i mean and like uh, I, I don't know. I just watched it and be like, I have no idea how they got that shot. And if you asked me to do that shot with money, I wouldn't have been able to do it. And that, yeah. that's why I fell so in love with it, man. I don't know. It's just a wonderful fucking piece. Of, it's, it, I think, and I think I said this in the initial review, it's the most simplistic version and this is how I'll wrap it up. It's like, that was a movie where I like almost teared up being like, this is why we make movies, man. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, it was yeah, just, no, Incredible. It feels like a new classic. It feels like a new American parable. 
Mm. Like as if we could have even come up with one at this point in our (laughs) human history, but it feels like one in a strange way Um, or like a new fairy tale. Uh, It's, it's going to stick with me for the rest of my life. Like a lot of these films on my top five or so are going to, Um, but there are, several images from this that have been seared into my brain, you know, even months after seeing it. And I did see it a second time and it's even better on the second watch. Um, See this on the, you know, the highest definition that you can with the best sound system that you can um, and just kind of fall into a world for two hours. And again, it's fucking funny. It might be the funniest film of the year. It's, I said this to my friend Ben when I was trying to sell him on it, but Willem Dafoe farts audibly in almost every scene and it still manages to be gripping. So that's how like spellbinding this fucking movie is. You have to know me too. I think fart jokes are the lowest common denominator. We get into philosophical debates about this all the time. Right. I don't know. We have fart jokes in a place. In this movie, I was like, each one a master stroke. Each one added something. Each one uh, a symphony of its own design. Dude, honestly, like the joke aside, I literally feel that way. Like, especially yeah. like the or the first two. Like, like maybe the third one where it was like Robert Pattinson's just leaning down mm-hmm. and he's in the doorway and he just straight farts on his face. And I'm like, oh my God, that's just out of dominance. Like, that's what dogs do to each other. <laughs> right. Uh, so, I mean, fall farts aside, uh, I, I, I really, I don't know, man. I was blown away by that movie. Yeah. There, there's not a single weak aspect to this movie. There's nothing that I can even say I'm like a little bit iffy on. Like, I think it's, I hate to throw around the word perfect, but maybe it's, almost perfect. it's, it's, it's as close as it can Look, get. Portrait, you know? portrait. Pure cinema. Is portrait number two because of the fucking really bad, like, <laughs> the wraparound story? Like, I, it's not bad in execution. It's fine. I just mean like that, like, what's that? Like the little girl <laughs> points to the painting and then we cut, we cut back in time to tell the tale. That's you know what I'm saying? That's like Dewey Cox oh, or like. Any, like <laughs> oh, is it, as opposed to number one, is that why it's not number yeah, one for like, me? It would be number one, but that fucking framing <sighs> device. No, I, I, I liked the framing device for that actually. Cause it kind of lent it an air of mystery and adventure. I like you know, it at the end because it's really bittersweet. Not to keep talking yeah. about portrait, but like the last time I mean, saw her was the that was really right. Pretty. Yeah, no, it's uh, just go go see that fucking yeah, movie. Watch if you every movie. Jesus on this list. Christ! <laughs> watch every movie on this goddamn list. Well, see, listen, um, I mean, like I'm glad that we had some divergent points. Granted, if I'd seen as much as you, I'm sure that uh, we would maybe have some more similarities. But I'm I'm really glad that like we overlapped yeah. where we needed to. Uh, mm-hmm. especially near the end which is really nice like for yeah me to be portrait three and, and then yeah that's awesome uh was cool. so hey man good year i think we nailed it yeah really great year and again like there's still shit i need to see but it's impossible to see everything uh in a month which is what i tried to fucking do so that's on me i'm gonna try to be better about that but real quick um off of your list and mine um i believe you can find the nightingale on hulu uh, Marriage Story is on Netflix. Um, Last Black Man in San Francisco is on Prime. Under the Silver Lake also on Prime. Um, let's see, The Irishman is on Netflix. And uh, High Life is also on Prime, uh, as well as Hagazusa, off of mine. So just go check those out, and the rest of them hopefully will be on streaming services very soon. Yeah, man, you're doing a service. Um, and again, I'm, I just, I'm really excited by how 
many different languages and, and perspectives are on this list. It's really exciting. Yeah. So, um, all right, man. Well, I think I think we nailed it. So, mm-hmm. should we set a course publicly? Like yeah, we did this before, or like <laughs> we'll talk about. It. We never did it. But I right. mean, what if, what if, maybe we should talk about this off mic. All right, we'll be back <laughs> next week with something. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back next yeah. week with something man uh, uh in the meantime max this was a lot of fun man yeah it sure was um stay tuned for whatever we do next whatever that is <laughs>